And if you don't love watching Tarantino movies, I don't. We're going to convince you why you should. All right, everybody. Thanks for tuning in. This is Theater Cleaners. This is our third episode ever. We're going to be talking about a great film from the man, the myth, the legend, Quentin Jerome Tarantino. Interesting thing is his middle name is actually Jerome. But we're going to be talking about Hateful Eight. And Hateful Eight is a wonderful story that is actually very plot driven. And it's basically the account of a bunch of different personalities trying to get to a town called Red Rock. And they get stuck in the middle of a blizzard. And all of these events unfold within a single location. So it's a very interesting film. And we're going to talk a lot about it. And we're going to have some interesting facts. So please stick around because you might want to hear some of them. Yeah, so uh, quick synopsis, like you just kind of gave one real quick, was uh, it doesn't take place in a lot of locations. It's a bunch of different people from a lot of different backgrounds uh, stuck up in a blizzard in a house. Haberdashery. Haberdashery. A, uh, Be correct. Hostel. A uh, hotel for the downtrodden. A, uh, a location doesn't really matter where it is in this movie, but it's a location where people that don't know each other, but kind of know each other, are held up and stuck at least a couple days together. And it gets a little risky, gets a little sketchy, and then it gets a little Tarantino-y. Oh, without a doubt, it gets a little Tarantino-y. But also, I just wanted to say, first and foremost, with the settings, trapping all of your characters into one location is such a great storytelling technique if you don't want your film to be strictly about the cinematography. If you want to let the story tell itself, trap your characters in a location because you're going to get to explore every avenue. Yeah, you also don't have to give up on cinematography Mm. with just that either you can you can still have a lot of uh creative shots a lot of interesting uh visuals but beyond that uh for the younger filmmakers the filmmakers without a larger budget uh even though tarantino's movies have massive budgets uh it's his style where he doesn't have a lot of locations usually one of his first movies reservoir dogs did not have a massive budget and it was a similar kind of idea taking place in almost all one location of the warehouse. Uh, so this is another good example of you can make a good movie without a million locations. If you have one good location, two solid locations, you can make something really good. Also, sorry, this is an interesting tidbit that I wanted to bring up. Yeah. Is that um, he actually wrote the screenplay for Killing Them Softly. So it's not one of the Tarantino 10 that he's slated to make in his career before he quits. But the screenplay for Killing Them Softly was actually written by Tarantino. Really? Yeah, it's an interesting little tidbit. But also, Hateful Eight is the eighth film of the Tarantino films. He's said multiple times that he plans to only make ten. Once Upon a Time in Hollywood's already out, so now I'm just excited to see what his final and tenth movie is. And knowing him, it's going to be grand. Well, are you counting the Kill Bills as separates or single movies? Counting the Kill Bills as separates. I read an article to where Tarantino is talking upon it. Because he said they were one movie. He said in his, I, I remember seeing it somewhere that the Kill Bill movies were one movie in separate parts. Interesting, because I read a article that was basically saying that he plans to make 10 and Hateful Eight was his eighth. Oh, interesting. Yeah, so he said he only has two left and they're going to be worth it. But, well, I mean. A lot of time in Hollywood was one of them and then. Whatever the next one will be. Yeah. Uh, I know, I remember what you're saying, that, that seems valid uh i just remember him saying that the kill bill ones were one movie one story it's one story but technically it is two movies yeah but i remember him saying it was like it doesn't really matter it's not like he's here to tell us who the fuck's right or wrong but i just straight out somewhere that like those were one movie in his his eyes it was one movie but hey mr tarantino if you're out there listening to this please hop on this show someday and clarify this for us yeah because you're just gonna shit all over all, all of our opinions <laughs> honestly yeah and i'm so here for it i would love to hear that man turn turn down any thought i have honestly because it'll make me better for it absolutely all right Anyways. so first up i know you say that this movie is not about cinematography as much as other aspects of its storytelling but let's talk about it real quick, get it done with. Yeah, super down. First of all, this movie is beautiful. Gorgeous. It has some amazing homages to old Western shots. Uh, specifically, in my mind, what I'm thinking about is 
when I watched this movie is all of the frames within a frame. That's a classic Western trope. You got the dude in the doorway. One of my favorite shots in the entire movie is once they pull up at the haberdashery and they're putting the horses away and you see them walking with the horses to the barn and it's just the white, stark, bright outside with the dark interior of the barn. I think that's such a pretty shot. And then Samuel L. Jackson leading the horses in. I think it looks good. It's one of my it's one of my favorite shots in the movie. Uh, but beyond that, do you have any favorites for yourself? Yeah, I mean, with any of the times that we talk about these movies, I always kind of go in a bit of a chronological order. So initially, one of the first things I want to say is the fact that they shot on 70 millimeter. It was a 2.76 to 1 aspect ratio, which, as we know, is like the massive IMAX screens, and it's meant for super widescreen viewings. And it's he obviously did that as an homage to like Ben-Hur and all those great 70 millimeter films. And one of the interesting things is Tarantino is actually known for his longer takes. And so he actually had to call a um, film stock company and ask them to create extra long spools for him. And he had to create a specific magazine that can hold them in order to shoot some of these long wide shots. And I think cinematography wise, one of the initial things that you pick up on in the movie is they don't just jump right into the action. They do a bunch of establishing shots of, you know, we're in the mountains, we're in the snow covered desolate area. And they do a lot of really big and grandiose like shots of that landscape to not only orient or like get the get the viewer orientated to how big of an actual scale that this is going to be but it's also showing off the location and i think all of those shots initially are just beautiful tarantino is a masterful craftsman of slow burning powder cakes dude dude, such a slow burn and i think i wrote that down like three or four different times of just this is a slow burn movie if you've watched it before I mean, it takes a little bit to watch it again because once you know the main story that's going on here, it's it's you pick up on it so much quicker and you see all of the little hints throughout the whole movie and it it's it's one of those that you can watch it a second time but it's never going to feel as good as it did the first time. And I think that's a fair case with almost all of his movies except yeah. the one that I always end up going back and back and back to is Inglorious Bastards. I just think that's a fun movie. That's that's just a really fun one. I think it might be his best movie. Dude, I'm not going to it's to rank any of them while we're like right here, but I'll tell you what mine is like off off air at some point. Okay. I just don't want to catch flack. They're all good. That's fair. It's it's like I don't know. If you go to like a five-star restaurant, every dish is going to be good. Yeah. That's fair. Um but back to what I was saying is Tarantino is a master craftsman of the slow burn into hyper action. Oh, he knows how to build suspense and keep it entertaining the entire time. Oh, he keeps you on the edge of your seat. Oh, like yeah. you're just waiting for the shoe to drop for 90% of them. Cause you know, what's going to happen. Absolutely. You just don't know when. Yeah. It's not a Tarantino movie. If there is just an excessive amount of gore and violence that like actually helps drive the story. It's not violence for violence sake. It's violence to tell a bit of a story. I mean, yeah, it is it, violence for violence's sake. I mean, but it still tells the story. It, it still tells the story, story yeah. and it's 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 an indulgence, honestly. You're right, but it's so good. Dude, it's I, I so just, good. I could stay here and talk about any of his movies for such a long time. So, honestly, to any of the viewers out there, we're gonna be super sorry if we get off off topic a little bit, but just indulge us because we love what we're talking about yeah. today. And if you don't love watching Tarantino movies, I don't. We're gonna convince you why you should. That's fair. Yeah, I was gonna say something mean. Yeah, don't say something. Mean. I won't. Yeah, not gonna. We love everybody. We're we love everybody here. Everybody love everybody. Shout out Jackie Moon, semi pro, horrible but awesome movie. <laughs> so some movies are horrible but awesome. That's just how it is. Absolutely. Um, but you know what movies are good and awesome? Tarantino's. Absolutely. Yeah. So, uh, I would say, like I was saying earlier, but we keep on getting distracted because we're both ADD. And we love talking about stuff that we love. Tarantino is a master craftsman of the slow burn suspense. He's on, you're on the edge of your seat the whole time. And he is a, a Renaissance artist with dialogue. Oh my God. He He writes dialogue that is so easy to listen to and so capturing, um, that the entire, I think, I think I didn't look up the exact, uh, timeline, but I think the first half of the movie is just in the wagon. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't coach. I mean, it's almost it's a three hour movie. So I would say like the first hour or so is building up until the haberdashery. Yeah. 
and then the haberdashery is like an hour and a half, and then it's the fucking the, payoff. Then the yeah. two, then the then the cutback, and then the other stuff. Yeah. Oh God, I I want to talk about such facts at a little bit of length. Yeah. Uh, a little down the line, so stay tuned for that because that's a phenomenal moment. That's honestly, it's not even like a storytelling thing I want to talk about. I just want to talk about the payoff for the viewer. Mm-hmm. The artistry of yeah, it's, it's like a master. Tarantino's a movie fan. He is. He, he makes movies. He makes movies for fans. Yeah, and I love him for that. Like it is, they're just love or hate him. He makes damn good movies. Yeah, entertaining. Say that's for sure. Um, the first, the first part of the movie, the first good chunk is a really long time. It's a lot of the runtime is just in the wagon, and at no point was I ever bored. No, I no can't tell it was, was either, because it's, it's one of those movies to where you really have to like, it's the story drives the film. And I think that's kind of been a constant theme between like the past couple that we've seen to where the story is obviously the major element and obviously all of the different aspects and tools that go into making a film obviously help drive it forward. But it is a very plot heavy and story heavy story. And I think that's one of the things that like if you pay attention and if you buy in, it very much is a slow burn, but there's such a good payoff because you invest and you are interested in these characters and interested in learning more about them. And I think that's one of the things that he does really well with. Definitely. He knows how to write interesting characters and he knows how to put interesting characters in interesting situations. Oh, 100%. Uh, big example is the fact that the very beginning of the movie, he's got Samuel Jackson... Uh, sitting on a bunch of his dead bounty bodies and they roll up and it's like, oh shit, this looks bad. Mm-hmm. In a Old West movie, a black guy sitting on a bunch of bodies out in the middle of nowhere. What do you think the driver's first thought's going to be? Who the fuck is this guy? Right? I, I feel like that's regardless. That's fair. Is. That's fair. Then it's kind of confirmed though is like, Okay, this guy's got a gun pointed at him. He's real, like, sketchy, real, like, not afraid of him, but not trusting. Mm-hmm. Uh, well, and then one of the best things that this movie does throughout the almost the entire movie is the characters know of one another. Oh, yeah. That's that a great moment. Which makes the... They don't personally know each other very well, but they know of each other, which makes the introductions to each other really natural and really easy and it's not a whole bunch of ex, uh, exposition that you need to hear and feel unnatural yep. it's like it's like well shit isn't that the guy that did this 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 yes I am that's who I am instead of like well who are you oh I'm blah 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 it feels way more natural uh, having someone reveal it from their knowledge rather than asking what that knowledge is because it feels cheap to the audience at least when I watch something and someone's explaining who they are, it feels cheap instead of having it explained in some other way. I think it's I think it's better, more natural. Well, I fully agree with that. And it also helps to dive into the action and dive into the story so much quicker is because they already have a grasp of who they are. Mm-hmm. And you're learning, like, all you need to know is basically the briefest backstory about who these people are. And then as they go in and they're in the wagon and they're telling their stories of, like, what led them there, all of these other backstories about different events you're learning along with all of the characters. So it makes it so much more interesting because it makes the viewer a part of the story. Like they're finding out things as other characters are finding it out. So you feel a little more invested. Yeah, definitely. Uh, But at the same time, as you're like learning these things with the other characters, they also have at some points more knowledge than you do about certain things, which again makes it interesting to have that information revealed, like you're saying, with other characters because some previously knew it it's not being revealed at the same time to everybody in the story because you can kind of start seeing these dynamics build out to, oh, that's what that's happening because that person actually kind of knew who that was beforehand, mm-hmm. right? Um, and again, like I was saying earlier, Tarantino knows how to write interesting characters into interesting situations. So boom, we've got the two bounty hunters with a bounty and then a bunch of dead bounties on top of the wagon, right? So that's already interesting. These two guys, their job is to bring in people that they kill and or bring them into justice to get paid, that's a little conflict of interest there, mm-hmm. right? So, okay, it's a little a little testy right now. It could go wrong. Two bounty hunters on the same bounties with each other could be kind of interesting. And then, boom, there's another guy there. What the fuck are you doing here? Why are you coming out of here? And then they figure out they kind of know each other. 
Yeah. Oh, who's this guy? Apparently the new sheriff. That's some bullshit. You I know shit. But that's one of the things that like really helps to drive the story and makes it super interesting for me is because the story continues to drive because they all somewhat have the same goal. Like, obviously, the main goal is get to Red Rock, but it's, like, for um, Kurt Russell's character, he can't actually collect on his bounty unless the sheriff's there. And then as we get to the haberdashery and the hangman's there, it all builds off of each other, and they need certain characters to keep it moving forward. And I think that's a really interesting spot. Um, I do want to transition to start talking about the haberdashery in those scenes. Real quick, one more thing. Yeah. Just to add on to the interesting characters and interesting interesting situations, Tarantino puts a black man in with a Southern rebel racist in the same car. They have the same kind of goal as to get to Red Rock, but it's really interesting to see how these people with very different views interact, and that's setting up the whole premise of the film almost right there. Oh, absolutely. Or at least what you think of at the beginning, because again, we're going to spoil this movie. But what you think at the beginning is, oh, this is union versus rebels or non-racist versus racist kind of at, like at the beginning. That's kind of what you think is going to happen when they get to the haberdashery, right? Oh, absolutely. Tarantino subverts that in the end, but it's really interesting how he sets up these situations. He's putting people in together that shouldn't be together. Well, I feel like that's like a common thing, not even with Tarantino, but a lot of directors do that. When you have conflicting personalities, yeah. because it, it creates a certain dynamic that's... He just goes to the extreme with it. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. I also want to say that like for Major Marquise Warren, Marquise, Marquise, whatever, Marquise Um Marquise. I think it's interesting to when you were talking about him sitting on the dead bodies and they're like, oh, who the fuck is this guy? How interesting is it to have a black character in a union major's uniform? Because mm-hmm. without them, like, obviously we come to know that they've heard of each other, so it makes sense eventually. But, like, for being OB, like, the stagecoach driver, like, that's got to be an interesting moment. Because OB is clearly neutral. He is party he is, neutral the whole time. Shit. Yeah. But I think that's an interesting bit to where it could have gone a lot different. Yeah. Based off of those things. But anyways, I wanted to transition to the haberdashery. A natural way to talk about that is the fact that Tarantino often shoots his movies in a chapters format. And I'm I'm a big fan of that. I think it really breaks up the film. It gives you that sort of relief. And it creates, you know, not having a lull for a transition. Um, but anyways, we get to Minnie's haberdashery. Initially, they're greeted by Bob. 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 Cabron. Eh. No, Bob's a cool dude. He's an interesting character, but as we get introduced to the haberdashery, I think one of the best things is when Kurt Russell and um, Daisy Domergue, uh enter into the haberdashery, they're kind of looking around, and they use that as a natural way to like have the camera follow them and orientate the viewer as to like what the space is and give them a full scale of the space because it's a POV of their POV. But also, I think for like behind the scenes standards, it's to check continuity because um, all of the exterior scenes were shot in like a frigid, cold Telluride, Colorado. But once they're inside of the haberdashery and they don't leave, that's on a soundstage in California. So they needed it to look correct. So I think obviously you have your people behind the scenes that are going out and checking all the continuity and everything like that. But it's also they can go back and look at that footage and be like, OK, that's there. That's there. All looks good. So it's a it's a bit of a dual dual thing yes but i think tarantino would say very much no to that well yeah i mean that's just me like kind of spitballing of like yeah. hey it's a dual purpose kind of shot no i see it i see it i just think i think personally more than anything else i think that's just tarantino's style of storytelling right he likes to make it dramatic make it interesting mm-hmm. how am i going to reveal all these different characters how am i going to ve- reveal this whole room well when does it reveal to some characters in the movie? I'll mm-hmm. do it then with the rest of them. Like when they learn, you guys will learn. Mm-hmm. I, think it's, I think it's a cool, interesting way. Um. So once they get into the haberdashery and it's just Kurt Russell and the Daisy Domergue. Um, I like how we're using names of actors and characters. Yeah, I know some of the actors' names and some of the characters' names. Yeah, it's a, it's a mixed bag. I'm sorry. Hangman and uh, Daisy Domergue. Yeah. I mean... The Hangman. Yeah, the Hangman's just his nickname. He had a real name. I know. Um, I remember it. 
anyways, we're getting sidetracked again. Sorry, sure. Anyways, uh, no, it's when they enter it, and I only picked this up because it was like one of my second or third watchings of this movie. But uh, as it's just Kurt Russell and Daisy going into the space and getting introduced to everybody, did you catch that Daisy like kind of warned all of her gang about the fact that it's not just OB, there's Warren and the sheriff that are outside helping with the stagecoach? I did not. Yeah, she do. She basically just announced it. She was, They were like, oh, is your party here? All of that. And she was like, yeah, everybody's here. We got uh, so-and-so helping with the stables and all oh, that. Shit, I didn't even notice that. It's so, like, it's so low-key, but it's one of those of you, you're only going to pick it up on your second watch. Because the first time I watched it, you have no idea yeah. that they're all in cahoots for the whole film until you hit that cutback. Or until Warren gets shot. Um, yeah, I didn't, I didn't realize that to be honest. Yeah. So she warned the entire room of like, Hey, there's more people here than you think are actually here right now. And so she lets her people that she's in cahoots with kind of in on the story. She lets her posse know. Yeah. And I thought that was one of the most interesting things and I hadn't picked up on it on, you know, my first or second watch, but it was like up on that until you just said that right now. Yeah. But it's phenomenal. And if you, if you didn't catch it, go back and definitely watch it again because it, it, they there's so many hints throughout the entirety of those scenes that, like, you will never pick up on them until you know the full story. There's so many little details that this movie does so well in foreshadowing, but you would have no idea, though. Like the coffee. When mm-hmm. Kurt Russell takes a sip of that coffee and says it tastes like shit, right? It's dead body water. You wouldn't know. Well, no, it's not. I don't think it's dead body water. I think Oh, because that's for through the people in yeah, the well. They probably got the water before that. There's a big jug of water. Uh, but he says it tastes like shit, right? But then a whole big part of the movie in, is it the fourth act? When they do the, the, what's it called? Flashback? Uh, the, yeah, that's the fourth act. The, the, uh, what's her name with the six horse? Uh, says that Minnie makes the best coffee, mm-hmm. right? And he walks in, the coffee that's made is like the worst fucking coffee in the world. Well, that's also another thing that I wanted to talk about, and that's um, Sam L. Jackson's character. He's picking up on every little thing that's going on, mm-hmm. especially like initially meeting Bob and interrogating Bob, coming in, checking out the space, noticing all of these different details are wrong. Like even down to the porridge later on. Yeah. Like the stew is exactly so-and-so's thing, and he's like, how would he have made this stew this morning but have been gone visiting Minnie's family for a week? Like, yep. I think that's one of the great things, and I even wrote it down, of like, dude, he's a fucking spot-on detective. Yeah, he's a dude. Uh, yeah, I like that. And it, the dialogue and the, the writing is so well done to reveal that, show you that he's thinking it, but he also it doesn't show the whole hand, right? Yeah. So you're just getting bits and pieces until you put them all together after you've watched the movie and you're like, holy shit, he fucking knew from the very first second. Absolutely. And I think one of the most uh, interesting things is when he's interrogating Bob and they're in the stables and Bob's like, it sounds a whole lot like you're accusing me. And Sam L's just like, yeah, but I haven't yet. He's like, yeah, sounds like it is. Yeah. But I haven't said it yet. And then later on, there's a callback to that moment where he's like, I'm fucking saying you did now. I'm but also you a liar and then he fuck Papa. <laughs> also big kudos to Bob for remembering the tobacco that Minnie smokes and the fact that she hand rolls it as we see in the flashback it's only a brief moment that's mm-hmm. that's said mm-hmm. and he picks up on it remembers it well enough to be able to use it in the actual conversation to prove his validity so there are things about Tarantino movies <clears throat> I'm sorry that there are uh, like plot holes sometimes there's a lot of plot holes because it's very high action movies one of them for me in this movie when I watched the the flashback scene, how the fuck did they clean up all the blood? Yeah, there's so much blood. <laughs> they yeah. clean it all up. Oh, sorry. The blood made me think of the floors in the haberdashery, and that's also another thing that I picked up with uh, Sam, L. Jack's, Sam L. Jackson's character is he kicks something on the floor and it goes into a groove between the jelly. floorboards. Yeah, it's the jelly bean, but it goes to a groove between the floorboards and he sees that there's no gap. So he knows that there's not an underground, and that's why later on, once he gets shot, he's not expecting it at all because he doesn't think there's a basement underneath the floor. Interesting. Because otherwise, he knows that whole space, so he wouldn't have put himself in that position had he known. Yeah, I didn't know that. That seems like it could be a reach. I feel like that was more of just like, hey, jelly beans were there. He knows they were there, but they're gotten now. See Why? 
But that also could be that I didn't think about that. It's, it's interesting. Well, to me, it's like I don't think Tarantino really puts anything into his movies that doesn't serve a purpose. That's true. And that was one of those that I was like, this is a really interesting bit and I'm going to explore it a little bit to see what meaning I can draw from it. Because honestly, you kind of like, especially with like a history or a background in film history, when you're writing like a paper, you kind of take a stab at a topic and explore it further to try and understand a deeper meaning behind anything. So I still kind of utilize that to where if I see something, I'm going to take a shot and try and theorize like why they chose to do it the way they did. Yeah. And sometimes it pays off and sometimes it doesn't, but it's always a fun avenue to explore. Something about that kind of idea that I always questioned to myself in like high school and college was when you have to read a book and you're like, what did the author think when they were writing this? Right? What were they thinking? I always thought to myself, this is bullshit. They probably didn't think of anything. They're probably just writing it because it sounds good, right? Oh, yeah. I used to do the exact same thing. Yeah. If someone says, hey, the curtains are blue, what do you mean behind that? Yeah. I think they mean the curtains are fucking blue, man. Yeah. But then but then if you like really read into it, and like you're saying from like an academic standpoint, it's really easy to see in movies. Uh, example is like Tarantino. He puts details in everything. There's details for everything. There's little details about the coffee being bad. Him, the, the rolled tobacco. Like all that kind of stuff. The the person sitting in Sweet Dave's chair. Person sitting in Sweet Dave's chair. The hats. Everything. There's so many different moments that are just like the fact that Bob's a Mexican. Yeah. Or how does how Samuel L. Jackson say it? Yeah. Says it with like a weird accent. Mexicans or something like that. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's also that's such a great scene when he's bringing up the signs about like. But like I was saying is, at first. You might be like, well, this is bullshit. There's no way they actually, like, really thought this was, like, anything. Like, they weren't writing it to think of it as anything more than that. Until you really look into it and be like, okay, maybe it was more than that. Mm-hmm. Maybe it really was. So, what I'm saying is, your first op- opinion or, like, impression of something might be wrong. So, don't be afraid to look into it more. Mm. Um, And... Tarantino is a good example of always looking into things more. He puts so many details into everything, so much different foreshadowing that you would never know in the first time watching because you wouldn't know the story until you watch it a second time. You're like, oh, shit. Mm-hmm. Or a third time, like, oh, shit. Uh, kind of reminds me of Shaun of the Dead, uh, where I'm pretty sure in that movie, I could be wrong, but they have the entire plot of the movie playing in the background on the TV. No way. Yeah, at the very beginning of the movie. Shows how often I've watched that. <laughs> All right. Uh, so, Todd, we know that Tarantino scores movies very well. Mm-hmm. Let's talk about that for a little bit. Yeah, absolutely. What are your opinions on the themes that Tarantino brings in with his music? He kind of goes neo like Western with it. Doesn't he? He like brings in music that's modern into these old period pieces. How do you feel about that? I love it. I think it brings it in fresh. I think it's great. I don't think I picked up on that. Really? Like when I watched, um, what's well, not? It's not just this movie. He does it with a lot of movies. Right, but I'm 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 gonna bring in like a different western, a more recent western that kind of did this was The Harder They Fall, and it's using yeah. like very very modern with a western twist kind of music. And for Tarantino, it still has that western feel, and it's not necessarily like super modern. No, it's not super modern, but it's not. it's not time period relevant. Yeah. But it's it's not noticeably like it's not so different that it's entirely noticeable. Like, yeah, it's I didn't really block. like I didn't really pick up on. Um, much of the score, the only thing I really picked up on is you don't notice it most of the movie, but when you do, it's absolutely at a pinnacle moment or a very important scene, and it's kind of like what we were talking about last week when we were talking about M, to where it's using sound to bring your attention to something. Definitely. Whether it's the lack thereof or the um kind of interjection of like throwing it in there after you haven't used it in a while yeah so speaking continuing on sound i don't know if you have anything about to say about that but i just thought of something right now is the slow-mo portions where he uses the distorted audio oh on fucking warren i didn't understand that i fucking hate it i didn't get it at all i actually i I wrote that down i was like i have no idea why he chose to do the voice distortion it doesn't add anything it doesn't take away anything but everybody else isn't in that moment. So it's like, why is he slow-mo? Like, yeah, he's dying. Yeah, his voice might be well, there's just weird, but it, it didn't make sense. It, there, there was a few times where they used the slow-mo distorted audio from 
multiple characters. It wasn't just Warren, I don't think. Oh, it's the main like, the main time I noticed it is Warren after he got his balls blown off and he yeah, just he's like just like, laying in bed is like Warren. Yeah. And it sounds distorted. It's not like it's not like the slow-mo ADR that they do to like fake slow-mo. It's like actually just slowed down audio and it mm-hmm. sounds funky and I'm not sure how I feel about it. I was wondering what you thought. Yeah, that, I mean, I, I feel like I just gave my thoughts because I, yeah. I didn't understand it. It didn't really like make a lot of sense to me. Like it didn't take anything away necessarily, but it's, it's just one of those choices that like I just want to know why. Yeah, same. I wish I could ask him why, what's the reason for it? Am I missing something? Because I feel like I'm missing something. Well, the other... The other thing, and I think this is literally that, and then the point I'm about to bring up are the only two things within this entire film that I actually question. Yeah, and we can question it and say we wouldn't do the same thing, but in the end, again, this is film. There is no right answers for anything. You can do whatever the hell you want when you're the director. It's your choice to to frame the film that way. Do we agree with it? Not necessarily. Uh, but again, that's like what we were talking about M last week. We are talking about how Lang experimented with different ways to use audio, different ways to, to do those things. And that's kind of what we're talking about is like, you can, you can do that. But then he was experimenting with stuff back then that people would have questioned. And maybe what I'm saying now is maybe something in the future we wouldn't question is that same kind of audio distortion. But because it's happening now, it's a more relevant early movie. Maybe that's why we're questioning it now. Gotcha. 10 years. Maybe we won't. The, the other point I was going to carry on to say that I was questioning, though, that was the narration at the start of Chapter 4. It's the only time there's a narrator, and yeah. I don't understand why they chose to bring that in. Feels out of place. It It's jarring. I It makes sense because it's like doing a recap of like the whole... like The movie does a really good job of showing every single side of every character's point of view, and it's the only time that we jump away from the main group and we're at a different place during what would be the same time yeah so it makes sense to use the narrator but it's just jarring because it's not used anywhere else so it makes you question it yeah i think i have more of an answer for that in what i could like get from watching the film is that that narration was filling you in on what the other characters in the room already knew yeah absolutely not necessarily like they didn't all know that uh whatever his name, Joe Gates poisoned the coffee. Not everybody knew that. Domague did. She saw it. But everybody knew that something was happening other than our two our two heroes at this point, mm-hmm. which would be Sheriff and uh, Samuel L. Jackson. Uh, it's filling us in. Like That's the first kind of moment in that movie. Like Maybe now watching it again, you realize, like, oh, it's kind of telling you that like this is the first kind of moment that you might realize everybody's in cahoots except for the people who've been watching with the whole time. Like, cause now it's filling you in. There's more happening now. It's not just like random shit that happened. It's like, oh, this seems a little more set up now. Well, it also creates an extra level of suspense is because once you get back into chapter five and it's caught up to the main timeline, um, Joe Gage is like, can I sit? And when we were in that flashback scene in chapter four, you see where they're stashing all these guns under the table. Yeah. So then there's a bit of a rewarding payoff with having just seen it to now you see how they're using it. And I thought that was really great and how they used that like time jump to really add to the final chapter. That's true. Uh, Speaking of that final, that like kind of review chapter, it's one of my favorite things to see in movies uh, because I think it's funny. Uh, to see big name actors be used for really small roles that are like basically irrelevant in the movie because I think it's hilarious. So this is our scheduled ten one break. Yep, this is a some <laughs> something happened. There's the garage door. I was like. All right, we are back from our not-so-scheduled 10-1 break provided by 12 Midnight. Once again, we didn't learn our lesson from last week, and someone came in the studio and started opening a garage door, so that was kind of loud, so we figured we'd take a little break and uh, recoup our thoughts, come back into it, so now we're just going to talk about the 
the final couple chapters of Hateful Eight mm-hmm. and try and butter this up on a on a little platter for y'all so you can have that satisfying ending like you do in the movie. Definitely. At this point, you'd probably think that our uh, not scheduled 10 one breaks are scheduled. It's starting, very starting to feel it, yeah. Very consistent. All right. So, going back into the uh, chapter, was it chapter four, the flashback chapter? Chapter four, yep. Yeah. It's the flashback. So, one of my favorite things is watching actors with big names come in for quick cameos and having their characters basically just like obliterated or like irrelevant in the film almost instantly. You think it's going to be like this big name drop. Oh my God, new character. What the hell? And then Tarantino is a master at just making it irrelevant because Channing Tatum comes out of the hole and he's like, hey, sis, and then boom, head blown off. It's just like, it's, well, I mean, it's just one of my, it's one of my, it's one of the funniest things to watch because you think something's going to happen. You think it's going to be like, oh, there's going to be some like some more interesting something because it's like a big name actor now. But then it subverts your, it subverts your expectations and it's funny. Well, that's why I like that they do that at the start of a chapter five is just get rid of him because chapter four, you get this revealing like flashback and it's such a good payoff because you get to see Minnie's haberdashery as it was meant to be. And you get to see all of the characters that you've been hearing everything about throughout the whole story of like, you know, the people that are supposed to be there. Um, And you're hearing all about these characters. You're getting to see all of the things firsthand. But then you also have Channing Tatum and the rest of their posse. And Tatum is fucking so killer for just his five minutes on screen. Oh, yeah. Like, he plays the role to a T, and he's done this in a ton of other movies to where he comes in for a brief cameo, and he's just kind of like, holy shit, that's Channing Tatum. And then it's, boom, he's gone. Yeah. And I think I agree with you that that's such a such a fun element that people introduce into films, but overall, like, I think that flashback scene or that, that little go back to let everybody know what was going on kind of scene is so fun because it, it gives you all of the information that you're missing, and it creates this like makes the story fully encompassed into like the one main story yeah i really like seeing uh what's his name pete is his actual name and thing but he's the the uh the the executioner yeah yeah yeah. Uh, i really like seeing his character how he puts on a character like he's some fucking english dude that doesn't give a fuck but then he puts on this like really happy like english chap kind of vibe as his like character in the movie that they're not seeing, I think that's I think that's great. I think it's a fun dynamic for for that to be in the movie. Dude, I think he killed that role, but I also like he did a great job, and I'm not gonna put it past him. But you know the dude, he's in a lot of Tarantino movies. Christoph think, Waltz. Christoph Waltz. Yeah, I thought that was his name. He was actually supposed to play that role, and then ended up not being able to do it. Oh, really? Yeah. So. Dude, I'm just saying, like, he played Christoph Waltz perfectly. <laughs> like, yeah, he, I thought it was him for the first little bit of the movie. Yeah. And then I was like, no, this is a different guy. But he, uh, I'm, I'm just like, what if? And it could have been so amazing if that yeah. had happened. But I mean, obviously, there's so many politics that goes into Yeah, I, li- I like the actor who it ended up being. I think he did a great job. And he did a great job emulating that same style that Christoph Waltz has in those kinds of characters. Did it fantastically. He did it really well. Um, also, sorry, I'm going to go on a little bit of a tangent. Do it. All right. So this movie wasn't supposed to be this movie. What do you mean? So originally, uh, this movie piggybacked Tarantino making Django Unchained, correct? Oh, it's the next one after, yeah. Yeah. So this was actually meant to originally be part of the Django Unchained world or metaverse like oh, they sure. with all the Marvel ones. So he originally started writing it about Django being up in the Rocky Mountains and all of that, and as he continued to develop the screenplay further and further, he realized that the Django element is actually what's holding back the story. So then it switched to becoming what we've seen as Hateful Eight, but also the script, when he started workshopping it around, the script actually got released. So then everybody and their mother was able to go and read the film, and all of these critics were able to read what the film is supposed to be, and initially Tarantino's thoughts are no fuck it that's it scripts out we're not going to make it anymore there's no surprises and all of the critics were basically like no you you have to make this movie like this is a fucking awesome concept it's a great movie you have to make it and so he ended up moving forward and actually producing the movie but the one we ended up seeing is nothing like that original script that got leaked there's so many changes and revisions that go on throughout shooting that it's just it took the same premise but it grew to such a greater movie because of it so I mean for anyone out there, like just because you have hiccups in the process of going to make whatever you're trying to make, it doesn't mean that you're diminishing your product in any way. 
And I just thought that was like a really interesting tidbit about the film. That also just brings light to kind of what it takes to make a movie happen and all the different elements that go into it in the very early stages. So you should, so you saying I should release my shitty screenplays and they'll get better when I make them? Yeah. Like anytime you open yourself up for criticism, good, bad, or whatever, you're yeah. going to learn Go and progress. Yeah. Definitely. Um, all right. So let's talk about the last chapter. Let's talk about the rap chapter. Let's talk about the wrap up. The wrap up. The wrap up. I was going to say wipe up and wrap up in it. I mean, honestly, you probably would need a, a wipe up after, yeah, after this final chapter. A lot of blood. Oh, yeah. Um, what are the moments in that last chapter that you find the most uh, either entertaining or, like, captivating to watch? What keeps you in there in that last chapter after seeing the whole reveal and basically knowing the end of the movie? What kept me entertained is the fact that all of these characters know that they're not going to make it out of the haberdashery. Every single one. Every single one. I mean, the only person who thinks they might make it out is Daisy. Yeah, is maybe like Damagoosh. Because she just thinks she's nothing's going to happen and she's just going to outlast the other ones. Yeah, she thinks she's, you know, like, she thinks she has the upper hand. Yeah, but, I mean, as they say in the movie, like, basically Major Warren was like, to the sheriff, he was like, hey, you know we're dying. We don't have control in jack shit anymore, but we have control over how fucking Daisy dies. Yeah. So let's make that shit happen. Yeah. And I thought that was one of the most, like, entertaining parts is, you know they're going to die, but what do you do in those last moments when you're bleeding out and all of this, but you still have, like, something you're trying to get done? Yeah. Uh, it seems kind of weird that, like, he has a tribute towards uh the hangman. Like, you barely know the guy. Yeah, just kind of, like, weird. I don't know. Um, I I liked it though. I didn't I didn't dislike it. I was like, yeah, that's respect. I feel like it was less respect for the hangman, more like this Daisy chick fucked up our whole shit. We're dead because of her. Oh, I mean, right? everybody's dead because yeah. of Daisy. Like, yeah, dude, I'm not gonna lie. They killed the casting in this movie, and it's great. One thing Tarantino's known for is taking a once mainstream actor who's been in like kind of a a bit of a valley or hasn't gotten great like mainstream work recently and putting them back in the limelight and letting them really show out. And I think that's one of the things that he did with our Daisy Domagoo. I can't remember the actress's name, but she hadn't been in anything for quite a while. And he was just like, yo, I got a role. I think you can fucking knock this one out the park. And granted she did. And I mean, her character, you just despise her right off the bat of the movie. And it just, it's, I don't know. It's one of those villains that you, you love to hate. Definitely. Like, you don't just hate this woman. You're, like, you're... You're happy when you see her die. You're happy when you see her die, but you're also, like, you see all the mischievous shit she's doing, and you're just kind of, like, okay, I'm not rooting for you, but I'm rooting for the situations that you're creating down the line. Yeah. Um, definitely. I would say something that really makes me kind of like the ending is how even though... Okay, the thing the thing that I find really interesting about the ending, and, it, and I like it, some people might not like it because it's like, oh, okay, whatever. But this story in the end is really about how people with differences come together and do the right thing. But at the same time, is it really the right thing? It's like frontier justice. There's a whole conversation about it. Like they had a whole conversation in the middle of the movie. What makes justice justice versus like frontier justice, mm -hmm. right? What makes it law justice and what makes it frontier justice? And it's the absent, uh, the absence of like, the executioner. The, what what did he say? It was the absence of uh, emotion or something along those lines. It was the yeah, absence of, uh, fuck. I really wish I wrote that down. No, it's like the absence of like enjoyment or something like that. Yeah, you can't have or unsatisfaction. That's it. Yeah, yeah. It's being, uh, basically completely neutral. Unsatisfied like, with it. Yeah, you you don't pick a side. You're just. That's why, literally, there's the age-old saying of judge, jury, and executioner. Yeah. Is because the judge and the jury, they're here to actually take a side. But the executioner, they're just carrying out whatever they decide. Mm -hmm. So you have to remain neutral and unpartied. Yeah. And I think that's one of the more interesting uh, little brief moments. And also that ties back into... The whole conversation they had and everything. Well, also, with the fact of Tarantino, he does everything with a purpose. 
-hmm. Every single line, every single detail, every single camera movement all has a purpose. So at the beginning of the movie, when he says what makes the difference is the, the lack of satisfaction. And in the end, it's the complete satisfaction that they have hanging her that, that ends the movie. Because it's a frontier movie and they frontier perform movie. frontier justice. Frontier justice. And it's like, it's interesting to see people come together with their vast differences, right? Like, he, like the character of the sheriff and the character of Sam, and Samuel Jack, Jackson's character should at no point be friends ever. Well, shit, dude. Even then, there's the moment where uh, Warren, like... Sam L breaks bread with the old rebel commander. Yeah, I think that's just a fuck with him, though. See, yes, but also it's kind of like a a showing of growth of the fact of like Warren is like, hey, I know you fucking hate me just because of the scal- like the color of my skin, but like I'm a bigger man because I can sit here and break bread with you because we've shared a batter- battlefield. You might not acknowledge it, but I still have the upper hand. And I think that's also part of the the countering viewpoints between all of these characters. And we haven't talked about the the old racist colonel before, so I just yeah, wanted to give it this like that's true. A little moment in the limelight. little limelight before he got fucking shot. <laughs> yeah, I mean, he finds out about his fucking son, uh, like all that. That, that scene was so uncomfortable, but so easy to watch. If that makes sense, yeah. like it's it's like it was so satisfying to like hear how hor like those those dudes were fucking horrible. Dude, and, and they got what they fucking deserved, right? That's like, it's like satisfying. Well, that's, that's the like with the frontier justice that got satisfaction from it. Well, that's also Tarantino. Just you know, he's not gonna just say something and not show you it. Oh yeah, like definitely, he's gonna show you every little detail definitely. because it matters to him. It's that hyper, it's that hyper violence slash like gore that Tarantino does. Is just like he's gonna make, he's gonna. So, this dude is like a rebel. He's super racist, right? And then his worst nightmare would be exactly what Samuel L. Jackson's describing. Did that actually happen in the world of that character? Who fucking knows? Yeah. I don't know. But it's great to watch that scene because you see this colonel who's a fucking awful person. Let's be honest. Just the worst person to interact with in the entire movie. Just so annoying. Um, And just, it's like, just seeing that, it's like satisfying. And... Samuel Jackson's character, uh, Colonel Warren. What was it, Major Warren? Major Marquise Warren. Major Marquise Warren. Uh, just goading him into exactly what he wanted to do. That Samuel Jackson's character was in control of that situation for almost the entire movie. I am so mad. What? I just thought of what Kurt Russell's name, character's name is. What is it? John Ruth. Oh God! Is it John Ruth? Yeah, it, yeah, dude, it was a simple name. We fucked up. I'm sorry, everybody. John Ruth, John the Hangman Ruth, John Ruth the Hangman, or the Hangman John Ruth. No, it's the Hangman John Ruth. Well, whatever it is, it's John Ruth, and there's a Hangman in there somewhere. Yes, um, straight up. Yeah. So I just, I just really like the payoff. Tarantino gives great payoffs. Is kind of what I'm getting at there. Is oh, yeah. he builds up everything into an amazing payoff. Absolutely. And I think that's a that's a beautiful way to just kind of transition into like our final thoughts, because I will say we could stay here for an hour and a half, two hours, talk about every little detail about this film, because there's so much you can actually talk about. And it's it's one of those movies that's so worth the watch. But I just wanted to know for you, what's one of the things that makes this uh, important or influential kind of movie or why someone should watch it? Um, so important or influential not necessarily like anything specific. I don't think Tarantino really does anything super groundbreaking in his movies. He just does things really well. He just he just makes movies really really good. And I can't really think of anything specifically that he like did anything groundbreaking in his movie that might be carried on to like next generations. He just does everything that he's ever seen in movies really 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 fucking well. Like if you want to see the execution of all of everything that's ever come to film before imperfectly, that's pretty much what Tarantino does. Is So, you can learn from Tarantino just watching his movies. You can see all those little details that he packs in that you wouldn't know unless you watch it a second time, which then makes the second time you watch it equally as interesting because now you're seeing all of that stuff. Because one of the problems with movies sometimes is you watch them and 
you know exactly what's happened and then you kind of get bored. Tarantino mm-hmm. movies has all those little details, especially this one has all those little details that you see after watching it uh, the first time. Um, so what makes this movie important? I love Westerns. Uh, so seeing new Westerns and seeing a new Western kind of like in a little bit different of a spin, it's always fun. So if you want to see a well-executed movie, this is it. My thing that I think is a, a really big takeaway for this is not necessarily any of the specific points other than like what we've talked about already here today. But I think what you can learn from Tarantino and from this movie Mailman again. Mailman again. Mailman again. Dude, I swear, we just keep getting hit with these, but I'm just going to keep rolling, keep trucking. Just ignore it. Sorry, everybody at home. But no, one of the, the most important things that I would say is, as like a person who works in the industry or anything like that, or any of the students out there that are rising to go and pursue kind of going on that same path, is Tarantino has a directorial style. And he utilizes that, and it's all of the things that we've talked about today, and those carry on to every single movie that he does. And, I mean, you can say the same thing for, like, Wes Anderson. He has a very distinct style. And, like, any of the major directors that you would have heard of from, like, the 70s of, like, Spielberg and Lucas and all of them, they all have distinct things that they do and follow throughout all of their different movies that they create. So I think for anyone that's at home take away what you can from this movie and see how he carries it over from thing to thing. And then if you're trying to create your own craft and your own style, find the elements that you really want to like dig into and explore every time you go to make a movie and highlight and emphasize those things. Definitely. So I think overall, like not only Hateful Eight is a, a great movie for learning that stuff because it's really great to be able to pick up on it and the more times you watch it, the more you'll pick up on it and you'll start noticing it in all the other movies. But I think Hateful Eight is just the cream of the crop for showcasing his style. Yeah. Um, and one last little thing. If you think we could talk about this movie for forever, this isn't even our favorite Tarantino movie. No, it's not. That's not. So. So I, I can only imagine how long we can talk about other stuff. Oh my God, dude. But we got to wrap it up. Because yeah. People got to stop listening to us. Yeah, we got to put a bow on it. I'm tired of hearing myself talk. Yes. I bet everybody at home's pretty sick of us too. Yes, sir. So uh, I think uh, hey, we got to wrap it up here. All right. Yeah, I got it. So I've been Todd Luther. Beside me has been Dominic Squeeze. We are Your Theater Cleaners, a 12 Midnight podcast that loves to talk about films and everything about them. We're just going to leave it at that and uh, wish you all a good week, and we'll catch you next one. Later, guys. Peace.